Hello, and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we begin our coverage of the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In this podcast, Gene Ann interviews Jeffrey Urban of the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. We will do part one of FDR. Then we're going to go and do a special podcast on the New Deal. Then we're going to do part two of FDR. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, I'm taking my family to Italy, so I have that to contend with too. And then after that, we will be getting into World War II events in greater detail. So, and now we turn it over to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. FDR, I think he's one of presidents that most people know a decent amount about, but I don't know if they necessarily know the intricacies about him. For FDR, his early life and education, how do you think that influenced the man he would become? Well, his early life and education were really um, central to who it was that he became. Um, he was tutored at home um, by uh, tutors from Europe. Uh, his parents were you know, quite wealthy, so um, they paid for him to be tutored at home. And um, he was also... Um, Sort of, he was the only child, uh, so he was sort of the apple of the eye of his mother and his father, and so he spent a lot of time with his with his mother and his father. His mother gave him a real sense of of uh, pluck, a real sense of confidence, a real sense of uh, just apply yourself and whatever you need to have happen, um, you know, you you can uh, you can make it happen. And his father gave him a real sense of uh, how to talk to regular ordinary people. They had a piece of property here about thirty two hundred acres. And of course, they couldn't work that all by themselves, so they had people living on the property. And young Franklin would go horseback riding with his father around the property uh, and see how his father interacted with the, you know, the resident carpenter and the resident farmers and the resident, uh, you know, chauffeurs and fence fixers and all those sorts of folks. And he saw how his father, you know, was just a real natural, um, regular guy with these folks. So when it came time later on for FDR to um, uh, you know, be able to get his fireside chats. He knew how to talk to, to regular folks. His mother had started him on a stamp collection when he was uh, very, very young. And eventually that grew to over a million stamps, 150 uh, volumes. And this came in very handy in teaching him geography. So when it came time to fight a world war on uh, two fronts, uh, you know, he knew where most of the places in the world were. And he knew uh, a lot about their culture and their history and those sorts of things. So between the professional tutoring and the you know, real involvement of his parents, uh, he got a, a really well-rounded and a great education that, that served him throughout the rest of his life. You know, for FDR, he's from New York. And when he wants to go into politics, you can't get elected in New York at this time in history, and even a little bit before that, without making the rounds with Tammany Hall. How would you describe his relationship with the political machine of New York? Well, he uh, oddly enough, um, he was uh, sort of handpicked to to run for the um, the New York State Senate, and the guy that had the job before that couldn't make up his mind if he wanted to run, not run again, run again, not run again. So when FDR uh, decided to run for the state Senate, he only had thirty days to uh, campaign, and so he hit every crossroads in Dutchess County. And he uh, got to Albany. And uh, when he got to Albany, he kind of set his sights on, um, on Tammany Hall. 
um, you know, the corruption there and the, um, you know, the perception that uh, things just weren't, you know, on the up and up. And so he got crossways with them pretty quick. And, um, you know, they went, they uh, tried to stand in his way of, of, uh, of moving up the political ladder and such. And um, there was, back in those days, that was when the, uh, the state legislatures selected who the state senators were going to be. And so Roosevelt stood opposed to uh, the Tammany uh, candidate. And what happened was uh, he learned pretty quick that you don't go against uh, Tammany, at least not directly. So eventually, um, so he, he initially started out as a sort of a, uh, you know, an antagonist to Tammany, and this won him the, re the uh, respect of, of ordinary folks and sort of this uh, mantle of being a corruption fighter, let's say. So he was able to hold on to that, but as his relationship with Tammany progressed, he realized that, you know, these guys were actually getting stuff done. These guys were actually pretty darn progressive. Now, you could argue with the methods they were using, but they were um, they were bringing uh, necessary uh, help and assistance to immigrants, to poor, uh, to workers. And these were things that were really near and dear to FDR's heart. So the relationship became less uh, cantankerous. And it really became, you know, copacetic when uh, FDR and Al Smith uh, sort of joined forces and, um, you know, had a nice uh, sort of a peace offering there. You know, they, Tammany Hall needed, you know, the, the money and the influence and the, you know, the pizzazz of the upper class and the upper class needed the street smarts and in the street connections of Tammany Hall. So they kind of made a um, sort of a pact, let's say. And, um, you know, they, they sort of said, all right, let's, let's look over the things we don't like about each other and let's look at what we can actually get done. Yeah. For, for FDR, he, you know, then goes on to be appointed the assistant secretary of the Navy, the youngest in history at that point. I think he was 31 when he was appointed, you know, assistant secretary of the Navy. He serves during a pretty crucial time, you know, during the time of World War One. You know, what does he accomplish as Secretary of the Navy? Well, the job of Secretary of the Navy, um, actually was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, um, serving under a gentleman by the name of Joseph Daniels. And Joseph Daniels was an old newspaper guy from South Carolina, and he liked the the uh, back room part of the job. So uh, he left the day-to-day -day operations really to FDR, and FDR loved this. He, he, uh, he wanted this job so badly his cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, had been assistant secretary of the Navy. Um, so he had modeled himself after um, yeah, after cousin Teddy. And FDR did everything he could to um, immerse himself in that job. He traveled all around the world to the various American naval bases. He climbed the rigging on the ships. He went down in the, you know, in the under decks of the ships and such. And he really made sure that the Navy got what it needed to you know, protect America's shores and also to participate in the war. Now, this served as a really great dress rehearsal for Franklin Roosevelt when it comes time to be commander-in-chief during the Second World War. He uh, got the experience of getting men and ships and materiel uh, across oceans to, uh, to fight uh, enemies. He also uh, expands the Navy during that time, and ironically enough, uh, several of the ships that he laid the keel for um, were actually at Pearl Harbor ended up getting bombed um, on December 7th, 1941. So he took this very seriously and very personally. You know, he had laid the keel for some of those ships, and now they were laying at the bottom of, of Pearl Harbor. So 
Um, it was a shock, of course, to the nation. It was a shock to the world, but it was especially a shock to, uh, to FDR. Yeah, for FDR, he, in between being Secretary of the Navy and Governor of New York, he gets polio. And eventually that that illness and it, and people did not think right away polio at first you know he kind of thought it was muscular and you know eventually a doctor comes and says you know you're paralyzed from the waist down we're pretty sure that this is you know what you've got i think that when you are you go from being able-bodied to now being unable to walk on your own not stand up how does fdr handle you know, going from being able to do whatever he wants to do when he wants to do it to being now limited to a wheelchair or canes and leg braces. It was a it was a completely life-changing event, as you may imagine, but it was especially tough for FDR because he was used to the Roosevelt name, the Roosevelt money, and Roosevelt connections solving all of his problems. And one night he goes to bed, he's got a backache, he wakes up the next morning, he's hardly able to walk, he wakes up the next morning, he's, he can't move. Um, people don't realize that the polio initially affected him from the neck down, and he was so weak that he couldn't even lift a soup spoon. Um, eventually, after six or eight weeks, it settled in his legs, and it gave him a real sense that, um, you know, you could uh, find yourself completely, in his case, literally paralyzed uh, by no fault of your own. And so the impact this had on him was, of course, first shock uh, and disbelief that, you know, the Roosevelt name money and connections couldn't solve this for him. But then it also helped to center him. It helped to slow him down. It helped to make him more introspective. He was kind of a glad flag, you know, bouncing around, doing whatever it was that he wanted to do. Uh, and this sort of gave him the opportunity or the, the necessity, really, of becoming a little more serious. Once he sat down someplace and settled in and was comfortable, he'd sit there for five or six hours. So a, a, a real discipline for him. But it also gave him the understanding of what people were going through during the Great Depression. Nobody wanted to lose their homes. Nobody wanted to lose their life savings. Nobody wanted to lose their jobs during the uh, Great Depression. He was able to see the analogy of by no fault of your own, something can happen that can literally knock you off your feet. And not that you need a necessary handout, but all you need is a help out. You know, he saw that with a little bit of assistance, a special wheelchair, canes, uh, you know, a valet to help him get dressed in the morning. Uh, he was able to go about pretty much everything that he wanted to go about politically. And he took that idea and applied it to the Great Depression. If we give people a little bit of a help out and not a handout, uh, with a little bit of assistance, they can get back on their feet and get back to you know, some sense of normal uh, existence again. So it really had a huge impact. And it's interesting, you know, to contemplate what FDR might have been had he not uh, contracted polio. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when you yourself have gone through difficulties, it allows you the ability to connect with other individuals in a way that you would not have been able to do without that experience. You know, what, when you know suffering, you can connect on that that intimate level with somebody. And I think if you look at the way he spoke on those radio you know, broadcasts, he was able to connect, he was able to strike a chord with people. And mm -hmm. I think if you look at, you know, what he does for other people with polio, after he, you know, there, you know, polio was a terrifying illness, people were terrified, you have all of these different epidemics that happen usually during the summer months that hit, you know, cities for the most part, because it was so heavily populated. 
But there was no way of knowing who would get it, who wouldn't, who would die, who would get paralyzed. So this was something that people were terrified of. And so for him, he's a big supporter or he becomes a big supporter of physiotherapy and he opens a rehabilitation center you know, in, in Warm Springs. He, he opens up a foundation that eventually becomes known as the March of Dimes. And so you look at what he does, you know, without that funding, you don't have the Salk vaccine. You don't have a way to stop this disease like we have today. And so I, I think it's important that, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, what would he have become without it? But look at what he attained even with it. Absolutely. He turned it to his advantage. And, you know, keep in mind, he was 39 years old when he contracted polio. So he was the grown man in the prime of his life and the prime of his, his uh, political career. And polio was generally um, a disease that people got in childhood. That's what also made it so terrifying because it was innocent little children. And, you know, you could get it and end up with, a, you know, an arm that didn't work so well. I could get it and end up in an iron lung. Somebody else could get it and end up with... Um, you know, paralysis in their legs. It just hit so many different people in so many different ways. And that's partly what made it so terrifying. And it would strike out of nowhere. It would strike in communities. Uh, people weren't really sure how it was passed, how it was spread. And um, it really was, uh, you know, ask anybody, you know, in their, uh, you know, let's say, 60s to 70s, you know, what the polio vaccine meant to them. And they'll, um, you know, they'll, they'll really be able to give you some insight. Yeah. I mean, both of my parents, my, both of my parents, um, you know, are baby boomers born right after world war two ended. And they remember that, you know, how terrified their parents were when different, you know, outbreaks would occur. And so for them, it, it was a game changer. It was something that they did, you know, it was one less thing. I mean, I, I'm a parent, you worry about a million different things on any given day, you know, so I can't imagine having to worry about that. He works for years to build up his strength. Eleanor, in many ways, were, you know, his legs, his eyes, his ears, his legs. He keeps his political contacts and he runs for governor of New York and he wins very narrowly, but he wins. Shortly after becoming governor of New York, the stock market crashes and we're plunged into what eventually becomes known as the Great Depression. And you mentioned a bit earlier that he realizes what people need. He, they need a help out, right? So as governor of New York, what were some of the things that he did to help people within the state during that time? Well, once again, you know, uh, the, the fact that he's governor during the first four years of the Great Depression becomes a perfect dress rehearsal for him, just like being assistant secretary of the Navy was a dress rehearsal for becoming commander in chief during World War II. Being governor of the state of New York, which was the largest state in the Union, so running New York State was like running a small country. And so what FDR did was he um, tapped into a lot of the progressive movement ideas, which uh, tended to start really at the ground level, you know, at the precinct, county, city levels and such. And he begins to experiment with those on the state level. And so many of the, the programs that we now know of as the New Deal programs actually began as small experiments here in New York State first. So things like the Civilian Conservation Corps, well, there was a state Civilian Conservation Corps before there was ever a national state conserva um, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. Um, 
the Tennessee Valley Authority is modeled after the um, St. Lawrence Seaway project in uh, northern uh, New York. Um, the WPA, these work programs and things were tried out first here. Uh, even addressing people over the radio, he was able to reach people all across the state um, through radio, and he does that then again um, with the nation. So it really served as a, as a uh, dress rehearsal of what government could do, what worked, what didn't work. And he tried to keep as much of the programming as he could at the local level because he figured that people at the local level would know best what they need as opposed to it coming from Washington. And so he saw that again in the state. You know, what's going on working in Syracuse is not going to work in, in Hempstead. It's not going to work in Albany. Uh, you know, everybody has to sort of blend this in at their own uh, their own particular home style, let's say. And then also Social Security was something that he saw uh, needing uh, to be done at a national level. It had been done dribs and drabs across the country and in, uh, and in New York State. And again, uh, just some great ideas bubbling up from uh, from the localities. And again, even some of the things coming up through Tammany Hall. So, um, you know, let's take the good, run with it, and, you know, we'll look the other way and some of the other stuff. Yeah. When he runs for president and, you know, first gets elected, what did the media, the average American citizen know of Roosevelt's disability? Everybody knew that Roosevelt had had polio. He had spent, uh, as you mentioned earlier, years, actually seven years back here in Hyde Park uh, and uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, trying to to regain some sense of mobility. He, he, he believed till the day he died, he was going to be able to walk again. And so he takes himself out of politics for about seven years or so. This is where Mrs. Roosevelt becomes critically important because she takes on the mantle of keeping the Roosevelt name alive locally, uh, at the state level, and nationally. And so everybody knew that he had polio, but uh, very few people knew how severely it had impacted him. I mean, he literally had to be lifted in and out of cars. He had to be lifted in and out of bed at night uh, and in the morning. Um, he was un unable to stand on his own. He had leg braces that he could lock at the knees uh, that would hold him up if he were uh, leaning on a cane or holding on to somebody or supporting themselves. So what he tried to do, to do was to downplay his disability. Um, yeah, he had polio, but it wasn't going to stop him from doing what it was that he wanted to do. And they went to great lengths to downplay the polio, uh, building ramps. Uh, whenever he stood at a, um, at a podium, there were railings that he was able to hold himself up with uh, out of sight of, of the uh, general audience. He was able to create the illusion of walking short distances, 5, 10, 15 feet maybe, um, which was really more of a controlled fall, just digging his upper body strength, flinging his body forward and catching himself on one leg and then twisting his uh, upper torso to fling the other leg out and you know, he was able to walk very short distances that way. So everybody knew he had polio. Very few people knew how uh, severely impacted he was. And that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted people talking about what he could do, not what he could not do. He wanted people talking about the fact that he could run a country. He could re-stimulate an economy. He could lead a global uh, coalition against Hitler. Uh, but he couldn't get up and uh, walk to the bathroom by himself. Yeah. When he moves into the White House, does he have to make any changes to the executive mansion in order for it to functionally work for him? Well, yeah, nobody had ever been uh, you know, 
needing to use a wheelchair in the White House before. Um, and so, um, you know, ramps and things like that, uh, certainly the elevator came in very, very handy. Um, you know, the, the pool that he's able to exercise in, uh, exercise rooms. So he, um, he really, uh, he tends to modify his environment. You know, he, he doesn't see anything really as a block or as a roadblock, but simply as a problem that needs to be worked around. And he does that in his personal life from getting from point A to point B. And he does that in our national life and the, the, our global life. I think both President and Mrs. Roosevelt were what I would call futurists. They were able to see where they wanted to go. They realized where they were. They didn't, they weren't Pollyannas. They didn't pull the wool over their own eyes. You know, we're in a great depression. I can't walk or, you know, I, I lack self-confidence in the case of Mrs. Roosevelt. But let's look at where I want to be. I want to be in a country that has a vibrant economy. I wanna be in a world that's based upon four essential freedoms, not Hitlerism. Uh, I wanna be uh, active and helpful to other people in the case of Mrs. Roosevelt. For FDR, he wins the presidency with a landslide victory when he's first elected. He becomes president after Herbert Hoover, who did not believe it was the government's job to, to do certain things, that this should happen more at a local level. For FDR, one of the first things that he does is he he handles the bank issues, right? Declares the bank holiday. But he also sets out with probably one of the most significant pieces of legislation in American history, you know, the New Deal. What was his goal with the New Deal? Well, on the big, uh, the big scope, the New Deal had uh, three primary goals, and those were relief, recovery, and reform. So how do we bring relief immediately? How do we get people in warm clothing because winter's coming? How do we get people in shelter because winter's coming? How do we get people uh, a meal this afternoon because they're hungry? So the first thing is to bring about relief. The second thing is to bring about recovery. How do we get the banks working again? How do we get the farms working again, the factories back in the schools, students back in the schools? And then the third thing is reform. How do we prevent this from happening again? Um, so we have things like, um, you know, the the, uh, the Bank Act, which separates commercial from savings banks, uh, the uh, FDIC, um, you know, insuring deposits, that, you know, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, insuring deposits. When you put the money in the bank, it's going to be there. The Securities and Exchange Commission. So if you need to, you know, and, and everybody talks about the alphabet soup programs, you know, the TVA and the WPA and the CCC, the, the three initials I would suggest people remember is relief, recovery, and reform. That's what the uh, New Deal was going to bring about. Roosevelt believed in the market system. Roosevelt believed in capitalism. He believed in democracy, but he believed that things were way out of whack. And it was up to the government to get those things back in balance. As you so rightly say, you know, President Hoover just, he believed uh, it had to be done at the local level. He believed it could be done through volunteerism. These are not bad ideas. They're not uh, even wrong ideas. They just were ideas that didn't necessarily work given the complexity uh, and the immensity of what the economic challenge was. So Roosevelt had this idea of experimentation. You know, let's experiment, see what works. If it works, that's good. If it doesn't work, let's give it up and we'll try something else. And then also based, the New Deal was based upon this idea of creating jobs. Now, an economist will tell you a job is very important because it gives you an income and then you have the income that you can save a little bit or spend. And then that's going to stimulate the economy because if you save it, it creates a pool of capital that people can borrow from to, you know, open businesses, 
And if you spend it, you're creating demand that then has to be filled. But Roosevelt also understood that through your job, you lose an important sense of your identity. You know, I'm an educator, you're an educator, uh, somebody might be a baker, a banker, a firefighter, whatever it is. But if you don't have that job, you lose an important part of your identity. And Roosevelt believed not only in the economic importance of work, but also in the spiritual and self-value importance of work. He knew people needed to feel uh, that they had a value, that they had a purpose, and if they felt that they had that, then that made them, A, a better worker, and also uh, a better citizen. He was very, very nervous about people having a lot of time on their hands, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And we see all around the world at this time, people like Mussolini, people like Hitler, people like Stalin, people like Franco, who are taking advantage of the um, economic crisis, not to create jobs, but to create armies and um, really uh, take it in an entirely different way, uh, giving them a sense of belief in uh, being part of a military. Roosevelt wanted to give them a sense of belief in being part of building something in their community through the WPA, whether it was a library, a hospital, a school, a bridge, an office building, whatever it was, uh, they had a value and a purpose above and beyond the very important paycheck, but also the, the psychological aspect of having a job. Do you think that there were any programs in particular that he was especially proud of when it came to the New Deal? He totally loved the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. That was probably his favorite uh, program. Um, he loved trees, he loved planting trees, he loved being out and among trees. And he saw the Civilian Conservation Corps as really um, kind of the perfect uh, program because it was a win-win for everyone who was involved. If you were a young man, 18 to 24, now you had a job uh, and you would uh, get a dollar a day, um, $30 a, a month, and then you'd be sent out to the hinterland to build uh, campsites or trails or retaining walls or whatever it was. And those local communities would get those uh, infrastructure fixes and uh, those sorts of things in their community. The young men would get job skills uh, and uh, you know, $30 uh, a month. The parents, meanwhile, would have a, you know, teenage boy or a young man out of the house that we all know how they eat. Um, and then the way it worked was that the the, uh, the young man actually only got to keep $5. The other $25 was sent back to the family to help pay for their mortgages, uh, meals, you know, uh, dresses for, you know, Sister Sally so she could go to school. So the communities made out in the process. They got the infrastructure built. The young men learned job skills and money management skills because they only had $5 a month. The parents made out because they were relieved of one hungry mouth. Uh, or if they had several boys that could go in, that would be even better. Uh, and then they got that extra money coming back. Um, and then the crime rate, believe it or not, went down in cities. And that went down because crime is a young man's profession. So if you've got a bunch of young men with nothing to do, they're going to create a gang. So rather than have a gang in a city, let's create a work gang out in the uh, in the wilderness. And this uh, came in very handy. In that uh, more than one general, you know, said, "Boy, when we got uh, into the war, and these guys had this basic skills. These guys had this basic training. They knew how to work as a team. They knew how to get things done. They had skills that was very very helpful to us, um, you know, in in the war effort. So that was his personal favorite." Uh, I think the one he was probably most proud of was Social Security, the ability to um, really bring some economic stability to people uh, in their lives that didn't have it uh, other than that. 
you know, back prior to, to the 1930s, 1935, um, you know, you lost your job too bad, you know, go out and try to find another one. If you were too old to work and were uh, fired or released from work because you were too old, you were on your own, maybe move in with a family. If you got injured at work, sorry about that. You know, here's the door. There's another worker that wants to take that job. So there was really little to fall back on other than your family or your maybe your, your local uh, religious organization or a community charity. But by creating Social Security, it gave a level playing field to folks who had uh, those kinds of difficulties in their lives. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, where you are, uh, they didn't have such a good, uh, um, you know, charity base so that, you know, you'd be out of luck. But by creating it at the federal level, it was able to even that out across uh, across the country. So he was most proud of, of that. The New Deal was not without its critics, that you know, for sure. People were very outspoken about the fact that they felt that this was overreaching by the government. They, you know, spoke out against the fact that there was inequity, you know, inequity within New Deal programs in regards to, you know, women who were hired or helped or uh, Black Americans who were hired and helped by New Deal programs. But the biggest blow to the New Deal was when the Supreme Court started to strike down certain programs as being unconstitutional. And one of the things that FDR hoped to do was to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Now, you will sometimes, well, most of the time, you will actually hear this referred to as court packing. But if you look at the history of the Supreme Court, it's important to note that the number of justices has has changed. It has fluctuated throughout history. And at that time, you don't even have one justice per you know district. So the, the thinking was, well, let's increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. There's a number of aging justices, which is perfectly okay because there's no age limit, right? It's until you're appointed, until you decide to retire or you die, right? Mm-hmm. There was nothing wrong with having an aging justice. It was perfectly legal. But the thought was, let's increase the number of justices to the Supreme Court. Why do you think they wanted to do that? And why do you think there was the public outcry against it? Well, again, you so rightly point out the fact that the, the number of justices on the Supreme Court uh, varied over the years. And when Roosevelt asked to uh, uh, add more justices, he was perfectly within his constitutional rights to do that. Article 3 um, you know, gives the Congress the, the power of uh, increasing the number of justices. And so what FDR was doing was he was asking Congress to do that. Now, um, the I think the problem, a couple problems with this. Number one is it was seen as a power grab. Okay, so um, again, as you mentioned, you know, he won with a landslide in the first election. He picked up even more seats in the Congress uh, in the second presidential election. So he had the executive branch sewn up. He had the legislative branch sewn up. And it looked as if now he was going after the, uh, the judicial branch. Now, if you know your Constitution, the three branches of government, the executive, legislative and judicial, are supposed to be co-equal branches of the government. And so they're. They're there to provide the checks and balances. So when it went, when it looked like he was going after the court to pack the court, it looked as if he was trying to gain control, really, of uh, of all three branches of government. And keep in mind, this is going on when you know Hitler is taking over Germany, Mussolini's taking over Italy. You know, all across the world, dictatorships are coming in, and it looks like Roosevelt's trying to build a, a dictatorship here. So that scared a lot of people. 
that scared um, a lot of people. The other thing was that um, Roosevelt didn't prepare anybody for this. He'd mentioned it only one time, the uh, the, the lack of, of action on the part of the court uh, during the, the 1936 campaign. And then he gets elected, and a few months later, he decides we're going to overhaul the court. So people weren't prepared for this. This came out of left field uh, for, for most folks. And it was sort of seen as a power grab. It was seen as, you know, wanting to sort of sum up uh, all branches of the government. And this left a really bad taste in people's mouths, especially given what was going on at the world stage at that time. And even people who supported Roosevelt said, whoa, 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 this might be, this is a bit of a, of a reach here. This is a bit of a grab. And so what it did was it spent a lot of its political capital because what it did was it, it connected uh, people from the right who didn't trust Roosevelt and people from the left who said, well, we got to be really careful about this. And it sort of brought them together. Uh, and it brought them together uh, in uh, being much more cautious about what Roosevelt was looking to do. Keep in mind also that the early New Deal programs, I like to think of those as kind of first aid, right? We're out on a hike and, you know, you cut yourself. I'm going to take off my tie and, you know, maybe use it as a tourniquet or a bandage or something. That's not a good idea uh, in terms of healthcare, but it's certainly a good idea in terms of stabilizing you until we get to the hospital. Once you get to the hospital, all right, now we'll clean the wound, we'll put on proper bandages, da-da-da. So the early New Deal programs were really a lot like first aid. You know, let's get what has to get done in order to get us through this. Then uh, by the second term, what the Supreme Court was looking at was, well, maybe some of these things that we did in the first uh, round of these things, things like the Agricultural Adjustment Act or the National uh, Recovery Administration, um, Social Security even came up on the block. It was passed, but, but barely, you know, approved by the court. So maybe some of these things need to be looked at a little bit more carefully. And that's really what the court reaction was. It was a more careful look at what the government was doing. You know, you're willing to, to try anything during the, the first aid period because you've got to stop the bleeding. But once you've stabilized the patient, is what you're doing really the, the necessary and appropriate thing in order to keep that, uh, that patient healthy uh, in the short run and also the, the long run. So court packing really was something that he shouldn't have done. You know, he didn't need to do it politically. In the end, he ended up being able to replace a number of justices that had voted against him just by natural attrition. And it was an uncharacteristically foolish thing for Roosevelt to do. We are going to stop our conversation with Jeffrey Urban from the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Museum and Library here. We will pick up our conversation after our episode on the New Deal. On our next episode, we will be joined by Neil Mayer, a history professor at New Jersey Institute of Technology and an accomplished author. See you then. Thank you for listening to U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Jean. Tell your friends about our podcast and where you learn all this great stuff about U.S. history. Follow us on social media and get onto our email list to learn about special events. They're coming up again. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon. LaSalle out.